Welcome in to another episode of the Cali Green Monster Show. I am your host, Dean Ryan, coming to you from the Tesla Studios here in a soggy San Diego, California. It's Thursday, March 11th, 2021. I feel like I haven't been able to say beautiful, sunny San Diego, California in a few days, and it just feels weird, you know, as a Southern California kid, a couple days of not that much sunlight makes me feel, you know, almost like a kind of a wilted flower in a way. I feel bad for you people up in Seattle, in the Northeast, the Midwest, basically every other part of the country, maybe besides Florida that gets shitty weather for big parts of the year. So, you know, I think maybe, I'm not sure if it's just a busy work week or just, you know, like, the you know, getting towards the end of the week, if that's what's got me tired or, you know, just the the cloudy, rainy weather's got me feeling a little blah. But, you know, I woke up this morning and I think it was definitely one of those days where, you know, I, I mentioned back when I did episode 30 that the goal with this show is to be able to bring you episodes when I have stuff that's interesting to me or stuff that I want to talk about or just stuff that I feel like that needs to be recorded on a podcast. So even though that these come out on a w- every weekday, that's just because every weekday I've had something to say and had something to want to be able to talk about. And today I felt like it was almost one of those first days where I was like, hey, I might maybe not record something today. I'm tired. I feel like I need to recharge my batteries. Nothing seems interesting to me to want to talk about. But then, you know, looking on ESPN's website, it dawned on me that it's been one year since coronavirus stopped the sports world. You know, I think if you would have ever told me at any point in my life that there would be no sports on at any point, that all of them would be canceled all at one time, I would have thought you're crazy or I would have told you that World War Three must have started. So, you know, it was just a very surreal moment. You know, January 26th, that's a, you know, pretty significant day in like a, of 2020 that I'll never forget. And it's for a number of reasons. If you listen back to my Kobe Bryant episode, you know, that's the day that Kobe Bryant passed away, January 26th. Like, I'll always remember that day. But that's also the last sport live sporting event that I was able to attend. My wife, son, and I, we went to the Farmers Insurance Open at Torrey Pines in San Diego. We got to see Tiger Woods and, you know, actually be in a crowd of people without wearing masks, being able to, you know, double fist beers and be able to cheer on Tiger Woods and not even having a care in the world. I mean, okay, I'll let me backtrack. Not having a care in the world. My wife and I were at least somewhat on edge knowing that the coronavirus was a thing because I think at that point, like, there had been a couple people that had tested positive in Orange County, and I think there was people in NorCal and in Washington that had had coronavirus. So just kind of knowing what was in the news and what had been coming out about COVID, we were definitely worried about how contagious it was, how little known was about it. So, But little did I know that that would be the last, basically, sporting event that I would go to. So March 11th of 2020 is the day that the Utah Jazz Center Rudy Gobert tested positive for COVID-19, which caused the Utah and Oklahoma City Thunder game to be canceled. And basically, that just set off a cascade of just sports being shut down. So like the next day, all the NCAA basketball, their conference tournaments, they were canceled. The 
MLB spring training that was canceled. The NHL suspended its season. The XFL stopped, which ultimately led to it its closing and eventual sale to The Rock. It was just one after another. You know, Boston Marathon was was canceled. You know, then the Masters was canceled. Everything from the PGA Tour was canceled. All of a sudden, the Olympic trials were canceled. And, you know, it was rumors of the Tokyo Olympics being possibly postponed until the next year. I think a lot of people at the time were kind of believing in the, you know, the two weeks to stop the curve. You know, that's something that we can kind of look back and kind of laugh about and make jokes about like, oh, yeah, back when we thought two weeks we'd be over this coronavirus thing. And, you know, someone argue that if we had done a proper lockdown or done the proper steps and, you know, if our country would have done the proper things to stop the coronavirus at the beginning, that maybe it would have stopped. But, I mean, if it's as contagious as we all thought, I think it was pretty naive of us to think that we had two weeks to just stop the curve. I think Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, he had anticipated that the league would only be suspended for 30 days and that they would be able to resume the season back with fans and full stadiums and just with new safety protocols. So that's just pretty laughable now because, you know, we're into the next season and there's still no fans in most arenas and even in the arenas that they do have fans it's a very very limited capacity so it's pretty crazy i think that alan adam silver thought it was only to be a 30-day suspension of play because nba they ended up not even picking it up back up until i think it was july 30th that was the you know when they were finally all sequestered into a bubble in walt disney world the NHL when they resumed their season they had bubbles in Toronto and Edmonton the MLB had to finally resume their season I think at the end of July as well where they only had a 60 game season as opposed to the usual 162 game season so everything was completely affected I mean I don't think I have to tell you there's a lot of people who are listening that you know work from home now exclusively because of COVID-19 that don't even have to go interact with people on a daily basis or people that have lost their jobs due to COVID-19. So, you know, it's been a crazy year. Like, looking back on it, I think, you know, I remember when I talked about the Kobe Bryant episode that it was such, you know, January 26th was such a memorable day that it felt like yesterday, but at the same time, it felt like a lifetime ago just because so much stuff has changed. So much stuff about COVID-19 has changed just with the information that we've learned and how to treat it and who's seriously affected by it. You know, now there's vaccines from multiple different companies being rolled out. At my current company, most of the people have been vaccinated. You know, the, the general populace slowly but surely will get vaccinated. So I think that we're definitely getting back onto the road of, you know, normal life. I don't think coronavirus is going away. I think it's going to be something like how, you know, we there's the flu, there's the cold. I think there's just going to be the coronavirus. I think hopefully people will just focus on, you know, treating it and, you know, treating it rather than trying to prevent it or make it go away because it's not going to go away. So that's why, you know, it's encouraging to see life, you know, starting to kind of get back to normal. I think in California, they starting April 1st, like Disneyland will be able to open with you know, I think limited capacity and certain guidelines. Baseball ballparks are going to be allowing fans back into the stands. 
uh, the Texas Rangers for opening day, I think on April 1st, they're going to be allowing 40,000 people into their stadium. So, you know, in Texas, it looks like life's getting back to normal. You know, even back in the Super Bowl in Tampa Bay, I think they had around 25,000 people there. And this year's WrestleMania, they're expecting to have at least that many people there. I'm expecting Vince McMahon, who someone has who's been making sure his business has continued through the, you know, COVID-19 and has been, you know, an advocate of trying to keep things as normal as possible. I think especially with WrestleMania taking place in Florida and their very lax guidelines, I expect WrestleMania to have a lot of people. And, you know, at least, you know, someone in California where things are pretty strict and we can't really do much, I think at least... We'll get to see other people in the country and other parts of the country be able to open up fully and just to kind of see how, you know, if COVID-19 really is kind of something that we can kind of put in the rearview mirror and get things back to normal. I fully expect that, you know, by the end of summer and the next football season to, you know, having fans back in the stands, you know, by the end of the 2020 season, a lot of teams were starting to let team or let fans in at limited capacity. There was a lot of stadiums that were letting in about like 10,000 people. I mean, there were certain places like Kansas City where like this, the crowd seemed like so incredibly loud, even with that limited capacity. And it'll be so nice to get crowds back in for live sports because watching sports, without fans it's kind of crazy you don't realize how much you really appreciate the atmosphere that a live audience really brings you know Fox I feel like their coverage in the NFL this year is kind of notorious for having really shitty crowd noise like people cheering when they shouldn't have been cheering just like things that just didn't make sense it was almost like I'd rather not have crowd noise than having the fake crowd noise that just became kind of annoying after a while you know, but as opposed to WWE, last year's WrestleMania, it went on as planned, but it was in their performance center rather than being in front of a live audience because, you know, this was the beginning of coronavirus when, you know, everyone was on lockdown and stuff. And watching professional wrestling without a crowd or anything and just it looks just like a bunch of dudes just being silly on a trampoline like watching a ladder match just look really goofy without having a crowd to react to the oohs and ahs it just looked like a bunch of an asshole a bunch of assholes making get just hurting themselves so you know i'm definitely really looking forward to you know life coming back to normal and you know maybe with treating coronavirus and treating the symptoms coronavirus maybe one of the things that we as humans and you know maybe me as a scientist and the scientific community we need to look into is corpse medicine yes corpse medicine as in bodies as in dead bodies using dead bodies as medicine so this was something i had read about a month or two ago and i just kind of have been keeping it stored as like okay maybe there's going to be a slow day where i'm not going to have too much there's not gonna be too much in the sports world and I want something interesting to talk about and I've even brought this up to a couple people in my life whether it be family or friends or co-workers and every single person had never heard of this and up until I had read this article I'd never heard of it as well as well so I thought you know this would be the perfect place to bring up how basically medicine in like the 17th and 18th century a lot there was people that really believed that corpse medicine really helped so this is taken from the smithsonian magazine so it's like it's from the smithsonian so it's not just some weird blog or anything so you know 
this seems as legit of source as anything. So, you know, rather than riff off it, I actually pulled up the article just because I wanted to be able to just read kind of a couple paragraphs from it because it was almost so unbelievable when I was reading it. But, you know, very interesting to just kind of learn, you know, just kind of get an insight as to, you know, some of the crazy medicine practices that people have had over the years. You know, I was just reading yesterday about lobotomies and how insane that was. So that might be something else I'll talk about on a different day. But here, let's talk about some corpse medicine. So Noble's new book, Medicinal Cannibalism in Early Modern English Literature and Culture, and another by Richard Sugg of England's University of Durham, Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, the history of corpse medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians, reveal that for several hundred years, peaking in the 16th and 17th centuries, many Europeans, including royalty, priests, and scientists, routinely ingested remedies containing human bones, blood, and fat as medicine for everything from headaches to epilepsy. There were few vocal opponents of the practice, even though cannibalism in the newly explored Americas was reviled as a mark of savagery. Mummies were stolen from Egyptian tombs and skulls were taken from Irish burial sites. Gravediggers robbed and sold body parts. So the question was not, should you eat human flesh, but what sort of flesh should you eat, says Suggs. The answer at first was Egyptian mummy, which was crumbled into tinctures to stanch and turtle bleeding. But other parts of the body soon followed. Skull was one common ingredient taken in powdered form to cure head ailments. Tom and Will- Thomas Willis, a 17th century pioneer of brain science, brewed a drink of apoplexy or bleeding that mingled powdered br- human skull and chocolate. And King Charles II of England sipped, quote, the king's drops his personal tincture containing human skull and alcohol. Even the toupee of moss that grew over a buried skull called usnea became a prized additive, its powder believed to cure nosebleeds and possibly epilepsy. Human fat was used to treat the outside of the body. German doctors, for instance, prescribed bandages soaked in it for wounds, and rubbing fat into the skin was considered a remedy for gout. Blood was procured as fresh as possible, while it was still thought to contain the vitality of the body. This requirement made it a challenge to acquire. The 16th century German-Swiss physician Peric Paracelsus believed blood was good for drinking, and one of his followers even suggested taking blood from a living body. Well, that doesn't seem to have been a common practice. The poor, who couldn't always afford the processed compounds sold in apothecaries, could gain the benefits of cannibal medicine by standing by at executions, paying a small amount for a cup of the still warm blood of the condemned. The executioner was considered a big healer in Germanic countries, says Suggs. It was a social, he was a social leper with almost magical powers. So for those who preferred their blood cooked, a 1679 recipe from a Franciscan apothecary describes how to make it into marmalade. Rub fat on an ache and it might ease your pain. Push powdered moss up your nose and your nosebleed will stop. If you can afford the king's drops, the float of alcohol probably helps you forget you're depressed, at least temporarily. 
In other words, these medicines may have been incidentally helpful, even though they worked by magical thinking. One more clumsy search for answers to the question of how to treat the ailments at a time when even the circulation of blood was not yet understood. However, consuming human remains fit with the leading medical theories of the day. It emerged from homeopathic ideas, said Noble. It's like cures like. So if you ground up skull for pains in the head or you drink blood for diseases of the blood. Another reason human remains were considered potent was because they were thought to contain the spirit of the body which, from which they were taken. Spirit was considered a very real part of physiology, linking the body and the soul. In this context, blood was especially powerful. They thought the blood carried the soul and did so in the form of vaporous spirits, says Sug. The freshest blood was considered the most robust. Sometimes the blood of young men was preferred, sometimes that of virginal young women. By ingesting corpse materials, one gains the strength of the person consumed. Noble quotes Leonardo da Vinci on the matter. We preserve our life with the death of others. In a dead thing, insensate life remains which when it is reunited with the stomachs of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. The idea also wasn't new to the Renaissance, just newly popular. Romans drank the blood of slain gladiators to absorb the vitality of strong young men. 15th century philosopher Marsilio Ficino suggested drinking blood from the arm of a young person for similar reasons. Many healers in other cultures, including in ancient Mesopotamia and India, believed in the usefulness of human body parts. Even at corpse medicine's peak, two groups were demonized for related behaviors that were considered savage and cannibalistic. One was Catholics, whom Protestants condemned for the belief in transubstination, that is, that the bread and wine taken during Holy Communion were, through God's power, changed into the body of the blood of Christ. The other group was Native Americans. Negative stereotypes about them were justified by the suggestion that these groups practice cannibalism. It looks like sheer hypocrisy, says Beth A. Conklin, a cultural and medical anthropologist at Vanderbilt University who has studied and written about cannibalism in the Americas. People of the time knew that corpse medicine was made from human remains, but through some mantle transubstantiation of their own, those consumers refused to see the cannibalistic implications of their own practices. Conklin finds a distinct difference between Europeans' corp medicine and the New World cannibalism she has studied. The one thing that we know is that almost all non-Western cannibal practice is deeply social in the sense that the relationship between the eater and the one who is eaten matters, says Conklin. In the European process, this was largely erased and made irrelevant. Human beings were reduced to simple biological matter equivalent to any other kind of commodity medicine. The hypocrisy was not entirely missed. In Michel de Montaigne's 16th century essay on the cannibals, for instance, he writes, Cannibalism in Brazil as no worse than Europeans' medicinal version and compares both favorably to the savage massacres of religious wars. As science strode forward, however, cannibal remedies died out. The practice dwindled in the 18th century around the time Europeans began regardly, regularly using forks for eating and soap for bathing, but Sugg found some late examples of corpse medicine. 
1847, an Englishman was advised to mix the skull of a young woman with treacle or molasses and feed it to his daughter to cure her epilepsy. He obtained the compound and administered it, as Sugg writes, but allegedly without effect. A belief that a magical candle made from human fat called a thieves candle could stupefy and paralyze a person lasted in the 1880s. Mummy was sold as medicine in German medical catalog at the beginning of the 20th century. And in 1908, the last known attempt was made in Germany to swallow blood at the scaffold. This is not to say that we have moved on from using one human body to heal another. Blood transfusions, organ transplants, and skin grafts are all examples of a modern form of medicine from the body. At their best, these practices are just as rich and poetic possibility as the mummies found in Don and Shakespeare, as blood and body parts are given freely from one human to another. But Noble points to the darker incarnation, the global black market trade and body parts for transplants. Her book cites news reports on the theft of organs of prisoners executed in China and closer to home of a body snatching ring in New York City that sold and that stole and sold body parts from the dead to medical companies. It's disturbing echo of the past, says Noble. It's the idea that once a body is dead, you can do what you want with it. So that was, you know, a pretty crazy article when I first read it. And that's why I wanted to just like, you know, at first I was just going to read a couple paragraphs. But as I was reading it right now, I was like, huh, this shit's pretty interesting. And I want to be able to give full context of everything. So, you know, maybe that's what we could do to stop coronavirus is just get the blood of young vital men or young women. And that'll just cure everything. You know, it's kind of amazing to, you know, think that, you know, humans you know, believe that. But at the end of the day, I think we have the, you know, people in the present day have the privilege of history and time and, you know, be able to, you know, I think people hundreds of years in the future will probably look at how ignorant we were, we are, we are now to certain things. You know, I literally work in an industry and my whole goal in my professional career is to try and cure cancer. So I'm hoping that years down the line, they'll be looking at stuff that we've done and either be able to say that was the key to curing cancer, or maybe they'll look and say, wow, look at how silly they were not even close. And, you know, hopefully in the future, you know, cancer isn't even a thing people have to worry about. Hopefully you found that interesting. That's all I got for you today. It's been another awesome episode of the Cali Green Monster Show. I've been your host, Dean Ryan. Again, I appreciate everyone that takes a listen to the show. Hopefully you're staying dry out there. You know, I see the sun peeking through, so maybe we're done with this rain. But until next time, I hope you have a good one, guys. Stay away from that corpse medicine. Peace.